0: Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott, and I'm the Assistant Editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version, or $60 for print plus online.
1: Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Menz and I lead the ABR Cultural Tours, which we present in association with Academy Travel. In October 2023, we will lead a 12-day tour of Vienna. This will take in the spectacular collections of the Habsburgs, the musical heritage of Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven, and the striking modernist architecture of the city. Vienna, where we will be based throughout the tour, is an ideal city for an extended stay, and the program has been designed to make the most of its many attractions. Several musical performances will feature in the program. Full details are available from the Academy Travel website. This week, our attention turns to an absorbing new memoir written by Darrell Pinckney. A frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books, the author of two novels, most recently Black Deutschland, and of a collection of non Busted in New York and Other Essays, from 2019. Pinkney's new book is Come Back in September, a literary education on West 67th Street, Manhattan. It recounts his early years in New York in the 1970s, and his remarkable friendship with Elizabeth Hardwick, for many of us, one of the outstanding literary critics of the 20th century. Along the way, we're introduced to some of the writers and celebrities who moved in Hardwick's orbit. Susan Sontag, Mary McCarthy, Robert Lowell, of course, to whom Hardwick had been married before she met Pinckney. And those legendary creators and long-time editors of the New York Review of Books, Barbara Epstein and Robert Silvers. I review Come Back in September in the April issue of ABR. For whatever reasons, I chose to relax my usual aversion to the perpendicular pronoun and began with a kind of autobiographical whimsy of my own, recalling my first visit to New York City around the time Pinckney was getting to know Elizabeth Hardwick there. One feature that doesn't change, however, is my reliance on quotation. I always encourage young critics to quote liberally from the book under review. I think it shows if you don't. In this extended review, I insert myriad quotations, some of them quite short, So many, in fact, that it would be tedious of me in a recording to stop and signal that I'm about to quote from Pinckney or whomsoever. If you're still interested at the end of this podcast, I would encourage you to consult the printed review where the quotes are all perfectly transparent. As you will recall, one of Elizabeth Hardwick's finest essays was an appreciation of Herman Melville, titled Bartleby, in Manhattan, after Melville's character Bartleby, the Scrivener. So it seemed sensible to title my review, Pinkney in Manhattan, On the Couch with Elizabeth Hardwick. I begin with an epigraph from Elizabeth Hardwick's novel, Sleepless Nights. It reads, If only one knew what to remember or pretend to remember. I first went to New York City in January 1975. It was wonderfully dilapidated. There was a blizzard of sorts, but I had the light jacket I'd bought in Athens. If it was cold, I didn't notice. The morning I arrived, there was a particularly gory pack murder on the subway. I read about it in the Times, so I avoided the subway and walked everywhere, through the sludge. We all knew what happened if you strayed into Central Park. Folks in Columbus, Ohio, where I'd been staying with friends, had implored me not to visit New York. They couldn't imagine why a nice young boy from somewhere called Melbourne, anarchically long hair and freakish wardrobe notwithstanding, wanted to visit that sinful city. Still missing Richard Nixon, they spoke of sin and sodomy. I stayed in Manhattan, in a grungy hotel soon to be demolished. The old black-and-white TV was on a constant loop, but I followed the Dick Cavett show as best I could. The louvered door to my room cast terrifying shadows over my bed whenever anyone passed my room. Each night I dreamt that an ogre was on his way from Wall Street to stab me to death. In the morning... I had breakfast for 99 cents, or, if I was hungry, $1.99. Then I didn't eat for the rest of the day. I haunted the grand old bookshops that lined Fifth Avenue in those days. I visited the Metropolitan Museum for the warmth, but I didn't know about the Frick. Velvet Underground wasn't playing at the Metropolitan Opera, so I skipped that. During my stay in New York, I didn't speak to a soul, which suited me fine. It was the purpose of my visit. It's unlikely that Darrell Pinckney, 21 then, still relatively new to Manhattan himself, an outsider because of his race and sexuality, ever went for more than 15 minutes without conversing with someone of consequence, whether literary, artistic, theatrical, bohemian, he moved in all these spheres. Often it was Elizabeth Hardwick, as he relates in this tender, quirky memoir of their unlikely friendship. It began in 1973 when Pinckney, a student at Columbia, raised in Indiana, joined Hardwick's creative writing course at Barnard College. During his interview... He had confided that his roommate had threatened to kidnap Harriet, Hardwick's daughter, with Robert Lowell, if she didn't enroll him in the course. Somehow it worked. Pinckney, though gauche, tried to be formal at first. Quote, Professor Hardwick was fresh and put together. Her soft appearance made the tough things she said even funnier. He entered into what he calls an education of sympathies, first as her student, then as a visitor to her apartment on West 67th Street, dog's body, reader of drafts, emptier of the dishwasher, companion, secretary, fact-checker, drinking partner, walker, fellow gossip, even shrink, in a way. Pinckney, a willing pupil, had much to learn. Shocked by what he had not read, he had no idea Herman Melville wrote poetry, for instance, Hardwick plied him with books. School and refuge, he says, was West 67th Street. Nothing if not candid and sometimes tactless herself, Hardwick told him that he was the worst poet she had ever read and that on no account should he ever write more poems. Hardwick, then approaching 60, expected Pinckney to know more than he did. Quote, She didn't let you say just anything even if you were tipsy. He stored up all her aphorisms. There were only two reasons to write, she said, desperation or revenge. Some of her advice is sage, motherly. An example, never talk about someone you know very well to someone you know less well. Like many New Yorkers, Pinckney is conscious of status titles. Robert Silver's, co-founder of the New York Review of Books, principal publisher of Hardwick's essays, has many names, Bob, Robert, Mr. Silvers. But Barbara Epstein, the other founder, is always Barbara, formidably so. Young Pinckney is intimidated by her. She may have doubted his motives or disapproved of his friendship with Hardwick, who is mainly Elizabeth in the text, sometimes Mrs. Lowell, seldom Lizzie. When Pinckney remarks how well she looks, Epstein says, I just have Jewish hair. It takes years before she relents, but then her affection for him and reliance on him are as deep as hardwicks. Pinckney seems at times very young. On the 11th anniversary of Plath's death, he hosts a suicide party. The narrative throughout is low-key, note-like, confidential, but desultory. Quote, is this when we talked about Berryman and Mr. Bones? Part six opens in medias res. She asked me to get her a copy of Lolita. Apropos of nothing, we're told that Maria Callas died the day of Robert Lowell's funeral. It is interesting for a while. Then it is not. The style is idiosyncratic, the syntax sly and venturesome. There are no quote marks, just dashes, a concession or confession of sorts. Pinckney would have drawn on the early journals those precious tete-a-tetes, but they were all burnt in one of several apartment fires he seems to have haphazardly caused. It is a distinctly New York kind of book. Pinkney admits to being seduced by the city at an early age. When he passes the Dakota, he must remind us that it was the setting for Roman Polanski's film, Rosemary's Baby. When the Lowells take Pinckney to a Fassbender film, they bump into the Alfred Kazans in the lobby. We walked slowly, he says. It's as if Hemingway must have crashed the party. His first funeral is that of James Baldwin, where he finds Epstein in conversation with Claire Bloom and Philip Roth. Everyone seems permanently hungover. It is always cocktail time, the moment for which all of New York lies, exercises, hurries, dresses, as Hardwick wrote in Sleepless Nights. Later, Pinckney alludes to his own alcoholism, his secret drug life. NYRB paid for his rehab. From a recent essay of his, we know that he no longer drinks or walks on the wild side. He lives in England with his longtime partner, the poet James Fenton, who chips in now and then with editorial advice and references to the homintern, the love that won't shut up, as Barbara Epstein dubs it. Everyone in this book seems to have a Wikipedia entry. Reference to the toll of AIDS casualties is frequent, but always succinct, parenthesized, too grave for biography. When Pinckney meets Hardwick, she's on her own again, Robert Lowell having left her for Caroline Blackwood, a Guinness heiress and former wife of Lucian Freud. Lowell had just published, with a kind of manic audacity, The Dolphin, 1973, a sonnet sequence based on the letters Hardwick had written him during this wrenching split. Hardwick, though incredulous, seems to have been unusually forgiving. She even tolerated the mercurial Blackwood, whom Lowell described as his Aphrodite and Ruin. The stuff on Lowell, the early years, the separation, the rapprochement of sorts, is fascinating. Gradually, chastened, Lowell returns to Hardwick, even moves in with her. Pinckney observes them closely, socialises with them. Hardwick is clear-eyed, inured to the poet's tempests. When Harriet, a great friend of Pinckney's, defends her father, her mother, like a wayward parent in what Maisie knew, says, Well, not mad, honey. I didn't mean he was. Yes, I did. Papa's mad. Then Lowell dies, of course, just 60, a heart attack in a cab on his way back to Hardwick. He is clutching Freud's portrait of Blackwood so tightly that hospital staff have to sever his fingers to release the painting. On his death in 1977, Robert Lowell was the commanding figure in American poetry. Only Elizabeth Bishop came close. Interestingly, Hardwick's profile soars now as her husband's recedes. Kathy Curtis published a major biography of Hardwick in 2021, A Splendid Intelligence. Michael Hoffman, Lowell's most eloquent devotee, remarked on this in his review of the uncollected essays of Elizabeth Hardwick, which appeared in the September 2022 Issue of ABR. Still, Lowell, hardly read now, perhaps untaught in American colleges, continues to fascinate in light of Saskia Hamilton's edition of The Dolphin Letters Elizabeth Hardwick, Robert Lowell, and Their Circle from 2019, a book that records Lowell's reckless use of Hardwick's letters. Lowell aside, the first half of Come Back in September is shadowed by the novel that would become Sleepless Nights, that great book written during the collapse of her marriage and in the wake of Lowell's death, an alchemical tour de force, as Geoffrey O'Brien describes it in the welcome new NYR Books reissue. Hardwick herself described this unconventional novel as a short-wave autobiography, when it appeared in 1979, the reception was encomiastic. Warren Beatty told Bob Silvers that he loved sleepless nights. But Hardwick was hurt and distressed when she learned that her sole surviving sister disapproved of her depiction of their family. Despite plans, it would be Hardwick's last novel. The portrait of Hardwick is intriguing throughout. And Pinckney is never less than captivated, even when he takes himself off to Germany, possibly to avoid temptation. We learn that Hardwick was badly burnt as a child. The recovery took months, the scars longer to fade. Pinckney writes, She'd felt discoloured, a freak, all her life. Self-consciousness made her physically shy. Unquote. We follow Hardwick's daily life, her scatty routines. She gains a new hairdresser, no longer Kenneth's, and her curls are much admired. She tries to diet and to moderate her drinking. Like one of Woody Allen's heroines, she dislikes nature, deeming it too vast. She is too urbanised to fathom the Grand Canyon. Her dislike of the English is intensified by Lowell's affair, which was the talk of London long before she heard about it. She confides in Pinckney about her own liaisons in the 1940s with two extremely handsome black men, as she puts it. She tells him about her abortion in Harlem with a black doctor who smoked during the procedure, a detail she used in her Billy Holiday story. Hardwick is a great phrase maker. She likens holidays, late recordings to sandpaper or a bruise. She can be very funny. The purpose of writing classes, she tells Pinkney, is to employ writers. Later, I can imagine being the Queen of England, but I can't imagine being Lillian Hellman. During a performance of La Cagliophol, she exclaims, "Oh, I have a blouse like that! It's Italian," and the audience laugh. It's such an intensely theatrical city. When a waiter calls her an actress, Hardwick says, Yes, I have a supporting role in the continuing farce of my life. The gossip is constant. When the Lowells, pre-Blackwood, visit the Elliots, Valerie says, Now, Elizabeth, would you like to see our bed? Hardwick recalls that everything in Hannah Aunt's Riverside Drive apartment was beige, including the food. George Steiner, at a dinner, is outraged because Charles Rosen, another lion of NYRB, fails to acknowledge his recent essay on Walter Benjamin. When Steiner upbraids him, Rosen says he hadn't mentioned the essay because it was so terrible. Simone de Beauvoir attends a dinner in New York in 1964, looks down her nose at the Manhattan wits and suddenly declares, I want to see Harlem. Then there is Gore Vidal. When someone asks him if the first person he slept with was a man or a woman, he replies, I thought at the time it would be rude to ask. Most remarkable about Hardwick, apart from her instinctive discernment, is her ear, the trademark epithets. Michael Hoffman has spoken of her natural eloquence and well-aired vocabulary. He says... These are not dictionary words. Each one is complex, fought over, delicately assertive. Wine words, not lager or lemonade words, Open any page of Hardwick at random and you will note examples of her individual style. Who else would risk a gem of a sentence like this one? Little called to mind the pitiful sweetness of a young girl. This is from Sleepless Nights. If they did, rest assured that some righteous editor would rearrange it. Apropos of editors, Hardwick had the best, as she well knew. The sections on NYRB are choice. From the beginning, Pinckney is entranced by everything about the review. The review's tables of contents were glamorous, he writes. They listed writers I'd seen on The Dick Cavett Show, he meets the editors, works in the mailroom. Robert Silvers, prompted by Hardwick, sends him a review copy with a note asking, quote, if I'd maybe see what could be done. When he files his article, Silvers sends him a three-page letter full of changes. But Silvers, though famously bad-tempered, never abuses Pinckney. Such is his reverence for Hardwick. The 43-year partnership of Silvers and Epstein, who launched NYRB only because of a strike at the Times, is recalled in fascinating detail. They scheme, they bicker, they conceal proofs to delay publication. Pinckney writes, they were like a married couple, only worse. He notes that when the editors leave the office for the same party, they never share a taxi, quote, It was like a contest, who arrived at the party later than the other. And yet, remarkably, the pact endured. They never published an article without full agreement from both of them. Hard work is typically dry about literary journalism. There is a classic quip about publishing. The only joy in these things is thinking how miserable you'd be if you weren't doing them. She estimates that NYRB pays her about two cents an hour. Still, despite the squabbles, the jealousies, the jockeying, there is real jeu d'esprit. When Hardwick embarks on her mighty essay, Bartleby in Manhattan, Epstein encourages her, give it a whirl, girl. Susan Sontag pops up now and then, ever self-conscious, she tells Hardwick that some morning she is unsure whether she is smart enough to write. Early on, Sontag craves the older woman's approval with what Pinckney calls a needy, insecure, throbbing hope. Sontag is, quote, chagrined when they all watch the Oscars, not wanting to, quote, smudge her record on never having looked at TV. Later, grander, she moves on, won't return calls, and it is Hardwick's turn to feel slighted. Despite everything she owes him, Sontag wavers about Robert Silver's. She agrees to write something for his 60th birthday, but, quote, couldn't print two-thirds of what she thinks of him. Sheepishly, she admits to Pinkney, I guess I'm too virtuous. In Sleepless Nights, Hardwick wrote, I've always... All my life, been looking for help from a man. It has come many times, and many more, it has not. Help, in a way, companionship, encouragement, love even, came in the end, improbable though it seemed to some, from a chatty, disorganised black undergraduate and hedonist. This created some confusion. The sight of them together... This grand dame off to the ballet with a black guy in his 20s led to gossip, a certain prurience. Never though, to Pinckney and Hardwick seem to have been confused about what they had. Race inevitably pervades the book. Pinckney has been writing now for decades about the lividity of race in America, while also helping to retrieve key figures in African-American literature. Hardwick, who grew up in Kentucky, could be tactless. There were some spectacular lapses, inadvertent or not. Pinckney listens, takes notes, but is forbearing. He sees through or beyond the South. In his essay on James Baldwin in the essay Busted in New York, he recalls Baldwin's Famous words to the astonished Cambridge Union Society in 1965. What has happened to white Southerners is much worse than what has happened to Negroes there. In the end, we are left with an illuminating portrait of the most diagnostically acute critic since Virginia Woolf. Michael Hoffman, in his admiring review of uncollected essays, writes it's as though no one thought to tell hardwick that being literary was a no-no or they did and she told them where to get off unquote. in her own essay on grub street new york published in the first issue of nyrb hardwick proclaimed the great difficulty is making a point making a difference with words how ringingly and undeterrably she did so from her red sofa on West 67th Street, vodka to hand, Daryl Pinckney by her side.
0: Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.